Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Good morning. Bill Handel here. It is a Monday morning, uh, November 29. Uh, some news that we are covering uh, starting today. City of L.A. If you're going to a restaurant, gym, entertainment, recreational facility, Uh, Some other businesses, you have to show proof of full vaccination. And talking about vaccination and COVID, let's check in with Dr. Jim Keeney, who is co-director of the ER Mission Hospital in Mission Viejo. Jim, good morning. Thanks for joining us. As always, I've got one word for you. Omicron, what the hell is going on? Yeah, so that's the the latest news. I mean, right, as soon as that hit, you knew we'd be talking. Um, the uh, it, it's the latest variant. Of course, you know they skipped over a couple because I guess they didn't want the name, you know, new variant, uh, and so they just skipped right over those. Uh, and so Omicron is the latest variant. I, I guess it, the the issue is that it has a lot of uh, of the well known uh, mutations that 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 actually improve infectability. Uh, but they're all found on this new variant. So seeing multiple different mutations together that were favorable, uh, people kind of got worried right away. You couple that with the fact that it really spread through South Africa in like a week and a half. So uh, the fact that it spread so quickly and overtook Delta, it it really raised everybody's red flags and alerts to say, hey, is this thing going to be serious or not? So we don't know at this point is it early days because we don't know how uh, how transmissible it is and how virulent it is the danger correct Right so I mean those are the the key things you want to know are uh, is it more transmissible than what we've already seen uh, and that's the concern when it takes over the uh, the dominant form in an area where the other where the delta used to be dominant. Number two is does the vaccine and do the antibodies and our treatments like these these current antiviral treatments coming down the road do they actually work or are they less effective? If those two things happen, we're in big trouble. Right now, we don't know that yet. It would look we don't have any reason to think that other than the mutations, but we don't know the answer to that question yet. And then the final one is how deadly is this thing? And that's some favorable news, at least word of mouth coming out of South Africa. Is this is not as severe an illness as what they've seen with the Delta virus or other other variants from COVID. So that last one is, is really important. And the word is word on the street is it's not as, as virulent or not as, as causing such a severe disease. But let's see. We'll have to wait and see. All right. When you talk about word on the street, uh, are you talking about just the buzz among the medical professionals or uh, have articles already been written uh, with case studies? Yeah, right now this is just buzz. All of it is pretty much just buzz. There's really no articles yet, like peer-reviewed journal articles to to discuss. This is all what experts are saying online, what experts are saying in the news, uh, and there's really not a lot of information out there yet to, to really stick your teeth into. We do know what the mutations are. Uh, we know that those are tend to be favorable mutations. We do know that the World Health Organization 
has called this uh, variant of, in, of concern. So that's pretty rare. You know, Delta was a variant of concern. So these are that that also is going to get people's attention when they did that. All right. So worst case scenario, and I'm not saying it's going to happen uh, and no one is at this point, is that you have a new variant that the existing vaccines don't do a very good job. And then we're back to square one. Is that a possibility? Yeah, we're never at this point. We're not back to square one, even if that happens, because we've learned a ton about how to treat COVID. You know, we've learned how to manage this process somewhat, how to manage patients with it, who we can send home, who we can who we can need to put in the hospital. Uh, so, yes, some of those factors may change a little bit, but we've learned so much that I think, yeah, even if we get a, an essentially new variant that's that's out of control that we can't control with, with vaccines or with antibodies, uh, even the vaccine, we're ahead of the curve. They can develop a new vaccine within days to months. You know, I think they were saying something like 100 days to develop uh, a tweaked vaccine that would take care of a new variant. So, so we're, we're way ahead of where we were before. All right. So if we're talking about that happening uh, now, full vaccination may very well be shot number four. Yes, it's possible. And this is why it's so important to get this out to the world and to um, to really try and control the virus to the greatest extent possible across the entire world, because we're not that far from South Africa, even though that's a darn long flight. Uh, it, you know, we're not that far. And it appears that this is already spread through the world. So you can see how connected we are and how important it is to, to stop the spread everywhere, not just in the United States. Yeah, you know, I was, watch, I was watching the news last night, of course, as I always do, and uh, it's uh, it, it makes so much sense. I'm thinking, why do they even bother shutting down countries? Because virtually every country allows its own citizens and nationals to come in. Let's say we were in South Africa. You and I took a vacation together, which, of course, will never happen. And we uh, came in from South Africa and we're allowed in is because we're American citizens. Boom, there goes the spread right there. Yeah. And as we can see with this is like it was discovered, you know, maybe a, a 10 days ago. I, I don't know the exact date, but less than two weeks ago, this thing was discovered in South Africa. And you've already got six or seven countries identifying the virus in their country. So it really is tough to clamp this thing down unless we, we stop all movement in the globe. And that's just, you know, so devastating that we need to, you know, we need to find better ways. And we're still back to the boring old ways of hand washing, wearing masks, social distancing, you know, limiting contact, when, especially staying home when you feel sick. You know, that, again, was a cultural thing for us, but most people went to work feeling sick. They didn't want to use sick days for, for a cold. And, uh, and now we have to really stay separated when we feel sick. And I'm wondering if uh, we have so much fatigue, uh, vac- uh, COVID fatigue, uh, that uh, I think another go round of just shutting things down. Remember when the uh, uh, COVID just hit and we're talking about it, it, it became big news. No one went, uh, no one drove, no one went on the streets. Very few people went to the supermarket. Uh, do you see us going back to those days at all? I don't think so, because you're right. There's just so much fatigue. I mean, even I, I just went to the uh, UCLA Berkeley football game over the weekend. That was weird, you know, to be in a huge stadium filled with people. And less than half the people kept their mask on for the whole game. And most people, it's hmm. signed everywhere say mask is mandatory, but most people didn't have their masks on during the game. And, uh, and so you got kids, 
yelling, screaming at adults. It was, you know, it's fun, but, uh, you know, you wonder, I wonder how, how uh, significant an event like that is for potentially spreading it. If, if somebody there had the Omicron uh, variant. Jim, thank you. Always appreciated. Now, what's going on with Santa Claus? Traditionally, you know, the kids sat on Santa's ear uh, lap and would whisper saying, here's what I want for Christmas. And Santa's back, but it, there's a lot going on still dealing with COVID. Now, the number of Santas that are working, uh, they're working. There's no question that the stores, the malls have Santa. And uh, the numbers that of people that go to see Santa with their kids is stunning. Uh, and boy, does it help sales. I mean, they've done studies of this and they are, uh, it's, it's, the numbers are just astounding in terms of how valuable Santas are. So uh, how about full contact visits, lap sitting? Eh, not so much. You'll be seeing Santas who may be wearing masks or plastic face shields like they did, just not as many. Uh, and then the clever stuff, hanging out in protective snow globes, like a lot of them did last year. Uh, and that's kind of clever, and uh, you don't get near any kids. Uh, but this season, it's about 50-50. And some Santas still remain behind barriers that popped up last year. Uh, at Minnesota's Mall of America, one of the largest malls, could still be the largest mall in America, Santa is going to be in a log cabin behind a window. And guests will be seated in front of him. Uh, and uh, a bunch of retailers and Santas, because they make the rules too, are offering the option of no or full contact. Uh, 10 million U.S. households visited Santa in a mall or store in 2019. Can you imagine? Uh, that's according to Global Data Retail. 73% of them spent money at nearby restaurants or stores. Uh, that's impressive. Although last year, and the numbers are still astounding. You've got 66 million households still visited Santa. That's how important uh, Santa is to the store, to the mall. And this year projections are 9 million households uh, with virtual visits still being a big option. Uh, now, uh, according to a spokesperson for Santa Vendor uh, or Cherry Hill Programs, one of the biggest Santa vendors, you know, the, the malls, what they do is contract with these companies that provide the Santas. And interestingly enough, those big fat Santas are right next to Weight Watchers uh, offices. It's just so bizarre. Uh, anyway, uh, what is helping is the new rollout for the vaccine for kids 5 to 11. And I, I imagine that, uh, and this is what I would do if I were a Santa or I were uh, one of those, if I was one of those companies, is I'd say, you want to sit on Santa's lap? Great. I just need proof of vaccination, full vaccination. Otherwise, uh, you're at a distance. Wow. Incidentally, this company, uh, Cherry Hill Programs, let me tell you how big this is. Uh, 800 malls, big box stores. Other locations, the options are for no contract visits or full contact uh, visit or a, a no contact visit or full contact visit. And all Santas, a matter of fact, all the employees, the elves, you know, that sort of thing that are there uh, have to be vaccinated or uh, tested regularly. So that's the news this year for Santa. 
You two can sit on Santa's lap if you want. There actually is a report card out there on housing. Uh, There is an organization uh, called the Southern California News Group. And what it does is, is it's the third year in a row, give grades for cities and counties uh, and how well they're doing at meeting their goals to add housing. Now, the majority of the counties and cities earned C's and D's. There are some A's, but there are twice as many F's. And out of the jurisdiction, city, counties, and California, and there are 538 of them, only 20 have uh, gotten their A on track to meet their goals in the affordable category. And so how does that work? And why is it so miserable in terms of the housing units that are permitted? We're talking about lower income, medium income. There, there's plenty of housing out there that's being built for upper middle class and uh, upper class folks who make a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, for example, uh, or joint income of a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. Plenty of that. Well, why? Because uh, those make money. I mean, affordable housing, especially for low-income folks, doesn't make money. And what is the number one reason that uh, these permits are not being taken out? Well, one, of course, is the money issue. Even though there are subsidies from the state, the cities, uh, the feds, in terms of housing, uh, most of the problem is nimbyism, not in my backyard. That's the biggest challenge to ending our housing crisis. And that's according to State Senator Scott Weiner out of San Francisco, who is a uh, Democrat, and he's chairperson of the Senate Housing Department. And so he says uh, the big problem is this nimbyism. Immediately, people start filing lawsuits. Uh, they don't want their property values to go down because when you have low-income housing uh, next door to you or down at the corner, a permit is given where they change the zoning to allow multiple dwellings for people who don't have any money. Oh, believe me, everybody is in an uproar. That's for sure. So uh, California's department uh, uses, the housing department uses something called the Regional Housing Needs Assessment, or RENA, uh, to determine how many housing units are needed. Okay, so what does that mean, how many housing units? Well, there's four categories. Very low-income housing. Low-income housing, moderate-income housing, and above-moderate-income housing, all of them being not market share or not the market value of the homes. So uh, where are they doing very, very well? Well, uh, cities like Beverly Hills, Buena Park, Calistoga, Costa Mesa, Fort Bragg, Guadalupe, very strange group of cities, Newport Beach, San Marino, et cetera, et cetera. And why are they in the A category? Is it because these cities are doing so terrifically? Is it because uh, the city councils uh, are so magnanimous and want to house uh, the folks that desperately need housing, that don't have the income to afford uh, what we normally would have to pay? Uh, no, no. Uh, It's because of the requirements uh, under the housing plan. For example, when you have Newport Beach, it's met its requirement. Why? 
Well, because during this cycle, uh, it has to build exactly 20. The whole city has to build 20 low-income housing units. Well, that's pretty easy to do, where you have the city of Los Angeles having to build thousands of them. So the housing crisis continues, and we are at C-, minus, incidentally, as far as doing the housing, and there are plenty of Fs. So we're not at a D, we're not at an F, we're at a C-, minus, and I guess that puts us right in the middle. And as I've said time and time again, with the house in it, the crisis, that's fair to say, the housing crisis becoming more of a crisis as property values simply explode and it's going on around the country. Uh, how do you deal with it? Well, you need tons of money. Uh, we, City of Los Angeles just added the ADUs, additional dwelling units. You can build a, a grandma flat on your property, uh, rent it out. That's a help because that'll be thousands and thousands of units that are added. But all of this becomes incremental. There's no easy answer. And five years from now, it'll be better than it is four years from now. And it just keeps on getting better slowly, yet surely. Don't call me Shirley. So now let's move over to a little bit of uh, politicking and uh, words that are pejorative. Now, we have a history of exchanging words, uh, blacks, and by the way, the N-word has always been a pejorative. It's always, always, always been. Well, that's not true. That's not true during the Civil Rights era, for example. I mean, not the Civil Rights, during the Civil War. Uh, the N-word prior to that was simply a descriptive phrase. Uh, it had none of the connotations that are here today. Abraham Lincoln used it. And then you have uh, Mark Twain, et cetera. So there's a whole history, but uh, we all know that's one of the most explosive words. And there's a new one that's out there that's getting more and more attention, and that is the word alien. Illegal alien, which incidentally is in the law, in the federal statutes. The word illegal doesn't appear. It's uh, actually resident alien uh, that you're here, but you are an alien. You don't belong here uh, if, well... The description is you're illegal, but uh, it has become a focal point of debate, uh, especially with the number of migrants, uh, illegal aliens, if you will, as they come across the border, the U.S.-Mexican border. Uh, that's uh, been a recent problem. And it has become such a pejorative. And you have activists, you have Democrats, uh, you have uh, folks themselves who legally are illegal. Uh, because, again, under federal statute, they are resident aliens. And the word is uh, now considered, uh, well, it's considered a truly pejorative word that is described as being dehumanizing. So which words uh, should uh, now be used? Well, uh, undocumented is a phrase that's being used a lot. Non-citizen is a phrase that's being used a lot. Now, as far as the federal government, because the resident alien statute is in federal law or the federal or the uh, non-resident alien, that language is used in the U.S. code. Uh, the Biden administration has said you don't use it on internal memos and no spokesperson is ever going to use it, even though it's still on the books. Where is it not on the books? Which two states say you can't use this at all in our state? 
in terms of describing non-resident aliens. Colorado and California. What a shocker that California would be at the top of the list. Incidentally, just a little bit of history here. In terms of the word alien, this is really interesting. Do you know when the first uh, description of aliens came into being in the United States? Uh, It was the first naturalization law that was passed while George Washington was president. And then in 1798, uh, Congress passed the Alien and Sedition Acts. Uh, That was dealing with a potential war with France. And there was language uh, of people that were pro-French. And so they passed the Alien and Sedition Acts. Uh, This is much like the laws that were passed during the McCarthy era. Now, uh, as I said, Republicans, for the most part, or many are saying, come on, give me a break. One of them is uh, the spokesperson for the Colorado Senate Republicans saying he doubted that the average Coloradan, Coloradian, uh, or even any American, do you really care about words that are buried in the state statute? Well, yeah. Uh, People do care about it. Uh, It's uh, a movement. And again, it's the, uh, a lot of people describe it as the politically correct movement. Uh, One of them being removal of statues, as you know, of anybody involved, uh, even connected to slavery. And there's a real problem there because all the founding fathers, uh, short of Sam Adams, uh, who was an an ardent abolitionist, you know, they owned slaves, Thomas Jefferson. They just knocked down uh, a, a statue of him. Uh, So what do you do? Monticello is a uh, part of the national park system. Uh, So is Mount Vernon, Washington. And you can actually go and visit. And there are the slave quarters right there. They can be pointed out. However, uh, I am, and I usually hate political correctness. If you've been listening to me at all over the years, you know how berserk I go with political correctness. But let me ask you a question. Uh, let's weigh the benefits here. Uh, is it all upside for us to use the word undocumented or migrant or non-citizen? How big a deal is that? I don't care. Relative to someone who is here illegally, although I can't use that anymore, and that is truly a pejorative phrase and people do get upset about it. So, you know, it's like the statues. Okay, Uh, taking down the statues and moving them to some park or some secluded area or some museum, how big a deal is that to those of us who are white? Eh. Relative to those who are African-American who look at a symbol of slavery, that's a big deal. So using non-citizen, migrant, undocumented, It's not that big a deal where folks who are, uh, and I think legitimately say it's totally, it's dehumanizing. But then again, so is the word felon. That's dehumanizing. Criminal, that's dehumanizing. I don't know where this is going to stop, but this one I'll buy. Now, of all the areas in the United States that have dealt with the the virus, Delta variant, Uh, Puerto Rico is actually the top of the list, which is kind of bizarre. Well, here are the reasons. As of November 22, Puerto Rico is fully vaccinated 74% of the population. Uh, That's more than any state or territory. 
And no surprise, the more uh, people are vaccinated, uh, the fewer their cases, uh, the fewer people are hospitalized, the fewer die of COVID. So by comparison, Florida, which of course is an anti-vax state, uh, 60% of its population, or 61, which is still above the national average. And so you would figure that the fewer number of people that are vaccinated, the more danger, the more hospitalizations, the more death. Yes, that's exactly the case. As a matter of fact, Florida residents have died uh, nearly triple the rate of Puerto Rico residents. So what is going on? What is the reason, number one, well, the simple reason is the more people vaccinated, uh, the fewer deaths, hospitalizations. But when it comes to Puerto Rico, it's a little bit different. Uh, first of all, you got politics, uh, a key factor, right? States that embrace the individualistic approach of the Trump administration, the anti-administration administration of President Trump, uh, will ignore scientific guidelines and avoid mandates. Uh, and those states had have, have had worse outcomes that than states that took a more comprehensive approach, masking, social distancing, mandates, vaccine mandates. So here's the difference. You have Florida Republican uh, Governor Ron DeSantis, who's been actually threatening government agencies with millions of dollars in fines if they mandate vaccines for employees. If you are one of the, even a businesses that said you're not walking in the door if you don't show proof of vaccination in Florida, he's pushing the fact it's illegal. We can fine you if you say that. In the meantime, you've got Puerto Rico Governor Pedro Pierluisi, uh, and he's a member of a progressive party. He caucuses with the Democrats. And what's been going on is the government has very quietly implemented some of the broadest vaccine mandates in the country. And no one's really, it, it has been under the radar. So you have Floridians with signs, no jab, no job, no way. Puerto Ricans have actually embraced the mandate. And why? I mean, what's the difference here? Well, it's a, actually a fairly simple reason. Puerto Rico has been hit by a couple of major, major disasters. One being a hurricane, Hurricane Maria, and then hit a couple of years later by a 6.4 magnitude earthquake. And then a bunch of significant aftershocks and then a second quake. And it caused additional damage to already damaged infrastructure that it just, well, first of all, the infrastructure to begin with was horrible. And then you had Hurricane Maria, which wiped out infrastructure. And then you had the uh, 19, uh, 2019 earthquake, which wiped out this, the infrastructure that was left. And federal and Puerto Rican governments failed to adequately respond. They couldn't. So who came in to pick up the pieces? NGOs, non-governmental organizations, charities came in uh, and uh, community leaders actually picked up the people, uh, picked up the pieces. And what they did is they built trust with the people of Puerto Rico. Maybe we can't trust our government because the government is ineffective. But you know what? We can trust the Red Cross we can trust the NGOs. We can trust the charities that are feeding everybody. So when the virus became 
obviously a worldwide epidemic, uh, pandemic. What happened in Puerto Rico is they followed the advice and simply followed the philosophy of the NGOs and the charities. And guess what the NGOs and charities were pushing? Vaccinations. Vaccinations. So by the time the pandemic hit after those two major catastrophes, these organizations had already established the relationships necessary for COVID prevention and established vaccination campaigns. And even though we have a lot of Americans uh, who believe in the conspiracy theories, you know, being injected with a microchip uh, that would allow the government to track them or the mRNA vaccine could permanently alter people's DNA, which, of course, is ridiculous. You know where they didn't buy it? They didn't buy it in Puerto Rico. Why? Well, because of those NGOs and charities who said, you know, that's kind of crap. And so the conspiracy theories uh, weren't didn't take hold in Puerto Rico. And a lot of the reasons, because the local political party simply didn't tolerate them. The conservatives, uh, the liberals, the uh, uh, midstream political parties just totally wouldn't accept uh, the conspiracy theories. Where you have the governors of Texas and you have the governor of Florida, not so much conspiracy theorists. And they're not. I'm not arguing that. They're not into the robbing of your DNA and the microchips. But what they are into is your freedom not to be vaccinated and notwithstanding any kind of health risk. Because uh, you have the freedom to say no. And frankly, it doesn't matter how many people die. You, as an American, have the kind of freedom where you have other jurisdictions, other groups of people where uh, the science really controls And you have Puerto Rico where the conspiracy theorists never even took hold. That's why the science always came first. Puerto Rico, the Puerto Rican government and people, well, they listen to the advice of local public health officials. So they maintain mask mandates and separation mandates and, of course, vaccination mandates. Now, here's a question. What is a hero? Well, you and I have discussed, uh, and you know what I feel about a hero. Every person in the armed forces is not a hero. Uh, Every cop is not a hero. Uh, Heroes, to me, are someone who goes way beyond uh, their duty. Uh, But when it comes to the U.S. government and hero pay, who's a hero? Frontline workers? Medical frontline workers? Firemen? How about farm workers and child care staffers? How about janitors and truck drivers? And state and local governments, boy, have they been struggling to figure out who exactly is a hero and should qualify for the money. By the way, this is federal money that has come in, and a lot of states are still sitting on it trying to figure out where does this money go? Uh, does it go to only government workers? Does it go to private employees? Uh, should it go to a small pool? Of workers like nurses, or should it go to grocery store workers who are and were at risk? So here we are uh, a year and a half into the pandemic. And of course, this has taken on all uh, political implications. For example, unions are really arguing to expand eligibility. And you've got workers who end up 
being left out, uh, they're rather embittered. So interim federal rules that were published six months ago allow state and local uh, recovery funds to be spent on premium pay for essential workers, although they won't describe what essential workers are. And uh, this is up to 13 bucks an hour on top of the regular wages, not to exceed $25,000 per employee. But if you fall within the definition of uh, those who receive hero pay, I got to tell you, an extra 13 bucks an hour, hmm, that's some money. And it's on top of the Fed money that went for the uh, additional, what, $600 a week uh, in the first stimulus package not counting what California gave, an additional $300 or $500 a week. I mean, people were making pretty good money doing a whole lot of nothing. Now, a lot of people had no place to work because of shutdowns, so that's a whole argument in terms of how much money was given and not. And the rules under federal, uh, the federal uh, uh, mandate for this allow grants to be provided to third-party employees, eligible workers. And what's the definition? Someone who has had regular in-person interactions or regular physical handling of items that were handled by other people. Well, that's pretty much everybody who isn't uh, working at home. Uh, As of last July, about a third of U.S. states used these relief funds to reward workers considered essential with bonuses. And who qualifies all over the place. And as a matter of fact, there are some states like Minnesota, they still have plenty of cash, $250 million set aside for hero pay, but they can't come up with a definition. A special committee, state committee, was able to come up with any kind of compromise plan. So the money is just sitting there. So what's going on? Who's a hero? I don't know. Who is eligible for additional pay? I don't know. Oh, by the way, I'm not alone on this one. Most governments are, I don't know, $250 million sitting in Minnesota. And they have yet to figure out where that money goes. It's it's an interesting question, isn't it? What's a hero? Today is the uh, second day of Hanukkah, and uh, we... uh, Celebrate at my house. We do the candle lighting. And as a matter of fact, uh, on uh, Instagram page, at uh, Bill Handel Show, uh, it'll show me with my yarmulke. Yesterday was a French theme of lighting the candles. And, of course, uh, my menorah, the candelabra thing, uh, is uh, was given to me by Michelle. And it is a menorah Soros Rex. Very interesting. Now, a little bit about the history of Hanukkah. And uh, this actually goes back, it is uh, historically true, uh, going back to 200 B.C., Judea, which is now uh, Israel, came under control of the king of Syria, who allowed the Jews to live there. Eh, you're okay, you can live there. His son, however, who followed him, not so much. Uh, Matter of fact, uh, if you're looking at ancient sources, uh, he outlawed the uh, Jewish religion, ordered the Jews to worship Greek gods. And uh, they wouldn't. And in 168 B.C., uh, the soldiers uh, descended on Jerusalem, massacring thousands of people and desecrating the holy second temple of the Jews. 
By the way, the second temple is exactly where the Al-Aqsa Mosque is today. Uh, that was the site of the second temple. So now, uh, why doesn't Hanukkah appear in the Torah? Because it happened after the Torah was written. However, it is mentioned in the New Testament. And then the story goes uh, about uh, this Jewish priest and his five sons were actually, they rebelled and uh, they were killed. And it was uh, basically, that was it. And, oh, and in order to bring back the temple, uh, the second temple, uh, if you ever go into a synagogue, you will see the eternal light. Usually it's a light bulb. Uh, however, uh, occasionally you will see uh, a real candle or some kind of lighting device. And that is supposed to be kept on uh, forever. And so what ended up happening is they were consecrating the temple. Uh, there was only oil, sacred oil, left for uh, one day. They had a day's worth of oil. And it lasted eight days. That's a miracle. By the way, I just want to point something out. Any good automotive oil is going to do the same thing. But what the hell? So the miracle is eight days, and it's eight days of Hanukkah. We light the menorah to signify the importance of Hanukkah. And by the way, it's not important at all. It is a minor holiday, much like Cinco de Mayo means nothing in Mexico. And Hanukkah is a real minor sort of nothing holiday. And why is it such a big deal? Because it's around Christmas. And Jews don't want to be left out. Hey, we want some of that. So we take this holiday around Christmas, and it changes, incidentally, just to let you know. It changes pretty rapidly because the Jewish calendar is very different than the Christian calendar that we know. Uh, matter of fact, the Jewish calendar is, uh, we're in our 5760 year, 5760 something, according to the Jewish calendar. That's a long calendar. And, uh, you know, the 5,000s were okay. The the 4,000s were pretty rough. Uh, 3,000s, eh, not bad. Uh, so this is Hanukkah. And every year, oh, yeah, and you got to give the kids presents, by the way. Yeah. And, uh, gee, Dad, what do I get for Hanukkah? I go, remember three years ago when you got the car? That was your Hanukkah gift forever. Oh, by the way, that's also your wedding gift. Enjoy. You do, might as well grab it now. Do adults exchange? Yeah, sort of. Uh, you know, you exchange Hanukkah gifts, but uh, it's not a, not a big deal because you have eight days of this. And you get one major Hanukkah gift or you can give a couple of like small gifts. And there are traditions. Uh, usually the, uh, the food is fried in oil to signify... Uh, the oil of uh, the temple. That's why latkes are there, you know, potato pancakes and jelly donuts, which I have no idea how that started, but donuts are fried in oil. And uh, everybody, after eight days of this stuff, everybody gets pimples. Uh, I'm telling you, there's a lot of oil involved. All right. Does that help? The story of Hanukkah? Yes, very All much right, so. There you go. A little bit of handle history there. And tonight will be day two of uh, Hanukkah. And we'll be lighting the candles again. We'll be back again tomorrow. Uh, happy Hanukkah to everybody. And tomorrow we'll do uh, the Jesus segment. Because that we didn't get to today. Movie about Jesus. By the way, there are no mystery movies about Jesus, incidentally. I just want to let you know. Uh, sort of everybody knows what happens. 
KFI AM 640 live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.